Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Stakes listeners. If you're into what we're doing on this show, let us know. Here's two things I need you to do. First, go to your podcast app and give us a rating. That would be awesome. And then sign up for our newsletter. I just finished writing the first edition, and it's going to be great. It's where I'll talk about the news, and I'll share some bonus reporting, and other great stuff about the team. So go to thestakespodcast.org and get on the list. I'm Kai Wright, and these are The Stakes. In this episode... When they go low, we kick them. If you're following anybody from our team on Twitter, you know that we all really, really geeked out over the special event we had to launch this podcast. I got to sit down with former Attorney General Eric Holder Jr. and talk about the state of our democracy and the Supreme Court and the upcoming elections and just a whole bunch of stuff. We talked for over an hour with a live audience here at WNYC. And I want to do something a little different here than we're normally going to do on the show. I want to just share at least part of that conversation with you. We began with special counsel Bob Mueller's report. And I asked Holder, what now? Can there be any form of accountability here for the disturbing things detailed in that report, even if they're not proven to be actual crimes? And does he think House Democrats ought to be pushing towards impeachment? Well, you know, um, I certainly think that we Democrats have been railing, um, and I think legitimately so, about Republicans not doing their constitutional duty and to have appropriate oversight of this president. They've been complicit in what this president has done. And I'm a little concerned now that um, Democrats seem a little sheepish now about doing that which I think the House is called upon, which is its constitutional duty. You've got this report. Um, You've got investigations that are underway. I I think that um, there's the need to gather, I think, more information. And I think that impeachment ought to be, you know, on the table. I don't say that right now. I don't think that, you know, there ought to be a vote in the House of Representatives as to whether or not the president should be impeached. But I certainly think that um, investigations should occur. The information from the special counsel should be um, examined. And if that leads to impeachment, that should occur. The notion that we don't do this because it will have um, potentially a negative political consequence, from my perspective, is unacceptable. Because of the accountability. Because of the accountability. I mean, that's not the way in which our system of government is set up. If the OLC opinion is that we cannot indict a president, and then we're going to say, well, we can't impeach this president because of political considerations, that then makes this president, as we always say and what we always abhor, puts him above the law. And that simply is inconsistent with um, the way in which our democracy is supposed to function. You are a person who has spent all of your adult life working inside a system, trying to make it work for the purpose of justice, trying to create social justice through Mm -hmm. law and order, through the federal government. And here we arrive at a moment where every apparatus of the federal government seems as though it's aligned against law and order and against justice. Do we take from that that we cannot count on the institutions themselves. What I'm groping around for how to answer the, ask this question, but mm-hmm. many of us, myself included, have a lot of skepticism about the idea that the institutions that you have spent your life building can mm-hmm. protect us 
from the evils of our society. What, what is, why should we have faith in these institutions? Well, I'm not sure that our institutions have failed, which I think was kind of what you're going at. I don't think that our institutions have necessarily failed us. Um, you know, we're still in the middle. This is a, you know, a movie that's going on. It's a three-act play. I don't know. We're somewhere in the middle of this thing, you know. It'll be interesting to see how, how it plays out. You know, the courts, I think, have um, done a good job. They've held, and um, there have been some rulings. A lot, you know, this administration in court has an abysmal batting average. I mean, you know, they go in there and get their heads handed to them like on almost a daily basis. So I think the courts have held. The career people in critical positions, I think, have done a good job in you know keeping the system on track. There's no question that the system and our institutions are being tested now. There's no question about that. And unless they are appropriately supported by um, people in leadership positions now, the systems could, I don't know if crack is the right word, but they could be irreparably harmed. And that's why I think the determinations that have to be made over the course of these next few months are really so, you know, so very, very critical. We cannot have a situation where at the end of the day, a president of the United States um, is allowed to do the things, especially if you look at that obstruction component of the Mueller report, and not be held accountable. That simply is unacceptable. Now, exactly what form that accountability will take, be it impeachment and ultimately, you know, a prosecution, something else. I mean, I, that has to that has to occur. Something has to that has to happen. We can't simply have that report, look at it, and say, "Wow, that's that's that that was wrong. That was that was terrible." And that be the and end. Let's of it. move on. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, the state of our democracy. That's something that you are working on feverishly now. You have announced that you are not going to run for, for president. Well, uh, unless, it depends on how this goes. Would you like to announce something now? We'd be happy to make some room for that if you'd no, like no, to talk no, about no. that. Yeah. That, was not, that was not a great joke. No. <laughs> you be sure to call me should you change your absolutely, mind and you need absolutely. a place to I talk will, about I that. So uh, you have instead taken on leadership of the National Democratic Redistricting Commission, mm -hmm. uh, uh, where you are trying to do the work of fixing mm -hmm. our gerrymandered congressional districts. Right. Can we start in 2010? Mm -hmm. 2010, I think, is an election that, that we don't think enough about today. The uh, shellacking, as President Obama <laughs> described. As President Obama described it, it was a wave election for the Republican Party, but not just in Congress, at the state level. State level as well, yeah. What happened as a consequence of that election? It was a consequential election. You knew that at the time. But now looking back, eight years now, 10 years, whatever it is, I mean, you realize how consequential that election was because redistricting occurred in 2011. And the people who did the redistricting were the people who were elected in 2010. And you had Republicans taking over state legislatures um, all around the country and, and getting trifectas, which has meant you know, the governor and then both houses of uh, the state legislatures. And they used that power to gerrymander in a way that uh, Princeton did a study that uh, the worst gerrymandering of the past half century. Now, you know, we've, been, we've had gerrymandering in this country, I guess, almost since its, its beginnings. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to fix it 
try to eliminate it. But what the Republicans did in 2011 was truly, truly breathtaking. And we've had to live with what they did in that partisan gerrymandering effort over the course of this last decade. And that was all fueled by the 2010 um, election. They redrew 213 congressional districts uh, and you know some stats from what you wrote about in the Harvard Law Review, I believe it was, 2012, 1.4 million more votes for Democrats for Congress. Uh, Republicans won a 33-seat majority. 2016, a majority of votes for Democrats in Congress. Republicans won a 33-seat majority. And so— And it goes on. I mean, you know, you look at 2018. Democrats had—it was a wave of election. Statisticians kind of look and look at those gerrymandered districts and say that Democrats should have gotten an additional 16 seats if the districts were drawn in a fair way, and Democrats should have flipped seven state house chambers, but were unable to do so because of the way in which the lines were drawn in, uh, in 2011. I asked him, how do we fix it? The Supreme Court will rule this term on two cases that could put new restrictions on partisan gerrymandering. But Holder is now leading the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, which is running point for the Democrats on getting ready for 2021, when the next maps are going to be drawn. He laid out the strategy for that fight. So we're going to bring lawsuits um, where we can on the basis of the Voting Rights Act if there's racial gerrymandering, but racial and partisan gerrymandering, we fight those. We support reform measures. We support efforts to have, let's take this out of the hands of politicians altogether. Let's have independent commissions actually draw the lines. They do it in Arizona. They do it in California quite successfully. We supported five states who had it on the ballot in 2018. And every time the people get the opportunity to vote for independent commissions, they vote for them overwhelmingly. So Missouri, Utah, Ohio, Michigan, Colorado, all of those states voted for it. And so that's a universal fix to you, is if every state it was an independent commission appointed by whoever yeah. state law says appoint instead of having the legislature. I actually think that's the best way. I think that's actually the best way to do it. So we file lawsuits, we support reform independent commissions, and then we also support we have direct electoral support. We'll support candidates for um, those critical redistricting positions who say that they will do redistricting in 2021 mm-hmm. in a fair way. That means governors. Sometimes it means secretaries of state. I was in Texas campaigning in 2018. Where we picked up 12 House seats, state House seats. We need nine more to take control of the Texas State House of Representatives. And if you do that, that would prevent the kind of excesses that you saw in 2011 um, in, in Texas. I often think about when you take a step back from the immediate questions, One of the ways we got into this in the first place is, of course, the legacy of Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. And there's this tension that I'd love to hear you tease out for me between the idea that in order to have black political power in a number of places, we need to have densely black political districts, which is a form of gerrymandering, versus in order to not have these skewed districts in the first place, we need to spread people out. So such that everybody has to represent a full slice mm-hmm. of the of the electorate. Setting aside the explicit partisan piece of it, those mm-hmm. seems like they're in conflict with each other when we think about gerrymandering and drawing districts. And yeah, I don't I don't think there's quite the tension that you you talk about. I mean, if you draw these districts in a fair way, so that they are relatively compact, um, that they're contiguous, you know, and that they have bizarre shapes, you know, you know, so that they are contiguous, um, that they respect. Uh, natural boundaries, and that they also take into consideration communities of interest. And you take those four factors to draw up district lines. You can come up with lines that are both fair and also are done in a way that's consistent with the Voting Rights Act so that communities of color will have the ability to express themselves in ways that um, 
gerrymandering as done by the Republicans in 2011 does, uh, does not allow, where they took advantage of that which the Voting Rights Act says. You've got to have communities of color give them the ability to express themselves politically. And so they pack, pack, you know, African-Americans, Hispanics into districts, which decreases ultimately. So yes, you get a, a black legislator or congressman, but the reality is that you have these other districts that could be impacted if you drew the lines in a more fair way, could have um, a greater sensitivity to those, um, the interests of African-Americans, of, of other people of color. They've done this very cynically and, um, you know, hold themselves out as, uh, as protectors of the Voting Rights Act. I mean, you know, one of the arguments they're making now with regard to the census, which I guess we're going to talk about, yes. is that Wilbur Ross said that Jeff Sessions told him that he needed to have this citizenship question on the census form so that Jeff Sessions could uh, be more effective at enforcing the Voting Rights Act. Now, if you want to understand hypocrisy, there it is. I mean, that is the, def whatever the definition is in Merriam-Webster now of hypocrisy, that needs to replace it. You know, that's, uh, that's the most hypocritical, uh, disingenuous thing. He's talking here about another Supreme Court case this term, one in which they'll decide whether the Trump administration can ask people about citizenship while taking the decennial census. He sees this case as very much tied to the one they're considering on partisan gerrymandering. And like many people, Holder thinks the Trump administration's real goal is to scare Latinos away from filling out the census in the first place, and thereby further game the redistricting process. This led us into a conversation about the Supreme Court overall, and the case that may well be Eric Holder's most famous defeat. That's after the break. Okay, so Eric Holder and I were talking about the Supreme Court. That's kind of fun to say. And we landed on one of the most infamous rulings of the 21st century. You know, one of the big moments in history, and I can imagine in your life, was in 2013 when uh, the Roberts Court ruled in Shelby County versus Eric Holder Jr. That We just uh, call that the Shelby County case. <laughs> That's like, you don't want your name on the Dred Scott case, you know what I mean? Like, so let's just call, we call it Dred Scott, let's just call it Shelby County and forget the V. Holder thing. All right, well, so on Shelby, yeah, uh, there we go. They, there we go. where they essentially uh, defanged the enforcement provisions of the Voting Rights Act. Well, they gutted the Voting Rights Act. They gutted it. Do you remember when you got that? Did you see it coming? You know, it was interesting. Uh, Don really was the um, Solicitor General. And um, I'm not naive, but I thought, given all that Congress had done, the hearings that they had held, the margins by which the Voting Rights Act had been renewed, the fact that it had been signed by a Republican president, and in fact, all of the renewals of the Voting Rights Act had been signed by Republican presidents, it just didn't seem to me that there was a basis to um, do what the court ultimately did. That is as ideological a decision as I think we've ever seen. And it's, you know, it's, you could potentially have a real suite of cases here. Citizens United, you know, we're going to let in, you know, all kinds of dark money. Shelby County, we're going to allow um, for the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, and that then spawns all these voter suppression uh, measures. And then if you don't knock down this partisan gerrymandering, in those three cases, you would really have, um, I think, altered the, the arc of our democracy. And my hope would be that, uh, you know, the Chief Justice, who is said to be an institutionalist, would understand the impact of those three cases. You know, but I thought in the Shelby County case that Justice Ginsburg clearly had it right. You know, she said if you're standing in a rainstorm with an umbrella over your head and you're not getting wet, 
that doesn't mean you take down the umbrella, you know? And that's exactly what happened. We took down the umbrella and we got rained on with all of these voter suppression uh, measures. And has it been as bad as, as you expected? Or have you been like, well, okay, we're, we're hanging in there? Uh, no, it's been bad. It's been extremely, extremely bad. And I think the courts have been, the lower courts have, have certainly, um, you know, been, I think, amenable to the kinds of cases that have been brought. We were not left with no tools. You said Section 2 cases that could be brought, but they're more difficult to bring. And the Section 5, the genius of Section 5, was that in those covered states, before a jurisdiction could change the location of polling places or change the way in which um, you know candidates or something, whatever, you had to get them pre-cleared. And so you could stop things before they happen. Section 2, you have you can only bring cases after the um, vote has has occurred. And um, that makes it that they're harder cases to prove and the negative impact is already uh, have you trying to undo something as opposed to preventing something with Section 5. So thinking about this suite of cases that you laid out, I mean, there's the, the Voting Rights Act and now we have Citizens United and now we have this gerrymandering right. decision coming. Mm-hmm. One, are you hopeful on the gerrymandering decision that they will in fact act and if they don't, where does that leave us um, with a court that's going to be the way it is for some time? Yeah. I, I can't say that I'm optimistic about the gerrymandering case. I had some degree, a greater degree of optimism when Justice Kennedy was there, who at least had indicated that, you know, you can go too far with partisan gerrymandering, um, but I'm not sure where, how do you draw the, the line? And that's essentially what he said. Justice Kavanaugh said some positive things um, during the oral arguments of the, um, of the partisan gerrymandering oral argument. And so we'll see, you know, what he does. I think the other four justices were not likely to get, so it may rest on Kavanaugh. Uh, and I'm not sure that, you know, uh, again, he said things in oral argument that that, it, that led people to believe that he was considering gives you some degree of hope. But here's the deal. So my hope is that I hope my hope is that we win. Um, my hope also is that if we don't win, they will do the least damage possible. Because one of the things that we have been doing now is to understand, all right, we're not likely to get a United States Supreme Court determination that you can go too far when it comes to partisan gerrymandering. So let's look at the state constitutions. And let's look at the state Supreme Courts. Case was brought in Pennsylvania using the Pennsylvania um, state constitution. Pennsylvania Supreme Court said that the partisan gerrymandering there was inappropriate. And the congressional delegation went from 13 Republicans, five Democrats, to 9-9 as a result of the changes that were made there, in which is pretty much a 50-50 state. We have now filed a lawsuit in North Carolina, again, using the North Carolina um, state constitution, and that'll go before a North Carolina Supreme Court. Right. And this court overall, we joke that we're waiting for Judge Kavanaugh on this opinion. We're looking at a court where Roberts and Kavanaugh are essentially the swing votes. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, that shows you how far right the court has moved. I mean, you know, the swing vote was Sandra Day, O'Connor, then it was Anthony Kennedy, and, you know, now it's, I guess, Chief Justice Roberts. You know, the swing keeps going further and further, uh, you know, to the right. I mean, I guess this brings me back to what I was fishing for earlier around institutions and where we turn for help. I mean, I feel like there is, amongst reform-minded people, liberals, progressives, however they identify, there's this look to the courts, there's this look to law to save us. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're now looking at a Supreme Court that is not Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, reform-minded. Thinking as somebody who, as a prosecutor, as somebody who has sat inside these institutions, 
where do we turn? Has that been folly that we've put so much weight on no, the courts in the first place? I don't think it's been folly, but I don't think that we have understood the history of the Supreme Court in a way that we should have. The Supreme Court has never, you know, there's the Earl Warren period. And we think about that as defining what the Supreme Court has always been. And the Supreme Court has always been a pretty conservative um, institution, maybe but for those years, but for the, the Warren years. Yeah, I think we should do what we can in the courts. But at base, at base, we have to win elections. We have to win elections. Progressives, Democrats need to win elections. And that's why I think this whole gerrymandering effort is so vitally important, because the reality is, if conservatives are in control of the courts, and uh, they certainly are in control of, control of the Supreme Court, the way to get control and, and push a progressive agenda is to control the, um, the state legislatures, which ultimately draw the lines for um, the House of United States House of Representatives, um, you know, win Senate seats. You know, the court's going to have the ability to um, make decisions on things other than legislation, but so much of what bedevils this nation, from my perspective, comes from, you know, what these legislatures are doing, and these, these heartbeat bills now, you know, that are being passed, that are really attempts to say that abortion should be illegal. That's the kind of thing where if you had a, a more representative state legislature, you wouldn't have to deal with that statute. That would not be a question that would ultimately resolve, have to be resolved by the Supreme Court. So we've got to get out there and do the blocking and tackling, the hard stuff of winning elections, but also winning elections, not just the presidency. You know, progressives, Democrats, we get all excited about, um, you know, who's running for president. And I'm the only Democrat who's not, um, you know. <laughs> And that's, Again, this is an opportunity for you. I'm not feeling this here. Um, and so, and that's true. You know, this election, this presidential election coming up is an existential one. Existential. We have to pick somebody who's going to win. You know, we have to win that election. But we can't do that at the expense of um, taking attention away from these state and local races where on a day-to-day -day basis, people's lives are really more directly impacted. If you care about, you know, reproductive rights, if you care about expanding Medicaid and doing the appropriate thing with regard to health care, if you care about climate, if you care about voter suppression, criminal justice reform, almost all of that stuff is decided at the state level. And we as progressives, Democrats, have let the Republicans kind of have their way there. And that is one of the things that the NDRC is bound and determined to stop. The 2010 elections and the very ugly political combat that followed for the rest of the Obama presidency, they seem to have shaped Eric Holder's own political perspective. There's his intense focus on organizing for elections at the state level. And then there's, well, there's this joke he made just before the 2018 elections. He said, when they go low, we kick them. I got a lot of grief when I, I said, uh, you know, when they go low, we kick them. You know, you know? <laughs> Maybe not. All right. So, but you know, what I was trying to say there is that um, we don't do anything inappropriate. We certainly follow the law, follow the rules, the norms, but we got to be tough. As, as I was saying before, we have to win this election, you know, and I don't want to come out of this next election thinking, well, you know, we made a good fight and was, you know, we, we followed principles and that was great. And Trump is still there. No, we have to win. We have to beat him. Ultimately, it's a question of power. In the end. Right. But, and progressives need to be comfortable with acquiring power and using power. You know, we've got to get to the point where that's an okay thing. 
You know, we're going to fight, fight to get power. We're going to use power in appropriate ways. And if we're not comfortable with both the acquisition of it and the use of it, you know, we're forever going to be bemoaning our fate. It's, uh, that's got to change. That's just simply got to change. We've talked a lot about the state of this country, the state of this democracy. Um, one of the silver linings in the Trump cloud is that it has awakened people to the notion of their civic responsibility. And what I would urge all of you to do is to not only to come to events like this, and hopefully this has been something that's been meaningful that you have enjoyed, um, and maybe even lit a fire um, under you, but to get out there and to fight for this democracy, to fight for this country, to understand that if we're going to have a better America, it's going to depend on what it is that each and every one of you do. And every week, look back at the prior week and say, ask yourself, what have I done? What have I done to make this country um, better, more just, more fair? We have that capacity within ourselves. We have that ability. Um, Dr. King said that the arc of the moral universe is long and it bends towards justice. But that only happens when people like you put their hands on that arc and pull it towards justice. And so I would urge you all, find the way to move that arc towards justice. Let's go out there and change the world. Thank you. Okay. The Stakes is a production of WNYC Studios and the newsroom of WNYC. A very special thanks to Melissa Egan and to our launch event host, the Jerome L. Green Performance Space at New York Public Radio. This episode was produced by Jessica Miller. It was edited by Karen Froman, who is also our executive producer. Casey Means is our technical director. Jim Schachter is vice president for news at WNYC. The Stakes team also includes Amanda Aronchik, Christopher Johnson, Johnny McCone, Kari Pitkin, Christopher Wirth, and Marilyn Williams. You too can join the team by signing up for our newsletter at thestakespodcast.org. You get bonus reporting and musings from me, and most importantly, a chance to help us find stories. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Kai underscore Wright. Thanks for listening.